Hello and welcome back. It's been Yamin Rose and myself, Gedalia Kutentaik, with Mishpachan's home front, a wide-angle view of Israel's biggest conflict in a generation. Hello, Benjamin. Good chodesh to you. And a good chodesh to you, Gedalia. We're a day removed now from Secretary of State Anthony Blinken's latest visit to the Middle East. This visit took him to Qatar, took him to Israel, it took him to Ramallah. One of the best pictures I saw yesterday was a Blinken uh, sitting with Abu Mazen staring straight ahead while Abu Mazen's looking at his watch. Like, when is this meeting going to be over already? He's got to get back to his pipe and his Holocaust denial. If anyone had jet lag, it should be Blinken. But Abu Mazen, who's up in years, you know, people talk about, oh, he's 88. By the way, Abu Mazen is the same as Mahmoud Abbas. Some people call him one name, some people call him the other. He's about 88. Everyone talks about how he's on his last legs, but what has to be kept in mind, his father lived to about 103. So there's no saying that Abu Mazen's going away anytime soon. And this is the person who Anthony Blinken would like to see take over Gaza as well after Israel finishes up its military operation, according to the Secretary of State, as quickly as possible. Like, you know, let's wrap this up, fellas. So I want to make two comments about Blinken's visit to Gedalia. Number one, the visit that he made to places like the UAE and to meet the Saudi Arabians, he came to Israel empty-handed. What he said is that, yes, Saudi Arabia is still interested in relations with Israel, but we have to have a path toward a Palestinian state, which was like telling someone right now that, that you know, the poison that you swallowed a couple months ago that made you very, very sick. Well, have some more of it. You'll feel better. Don't worry. And maybe this time it'll be an antidote. It was a bad message. But the worst thing that I saw was a short clip of his press conference in Qatar. Now, just to give some background, there's a journalist, uh, and I put that in quotes, for Al Jazeera. His name was Hamza Dadu, and he's the son of Wael Dadu, who's the director of Al Jazeera's office in Gaza. Now, we know that Jazeera, some people call them a news organization, and they are to an extent, but they're basically a propagandist for Hamas and Islamic Jihad. And Israel eliminated Hamza Dadu, the son of the director of Al Jazeera's office in Gaza. And in a press conference in Qatar, a journalist challenged Blinken and said, what do you think about targeting journalists? Do you think that this is the right thing to do? So let's listen to this clip. It's about one minute long, and let's listen to the question, and let's hear how the Secretary of State responded. I am deeply, deeply sorry. 110 journalists being targeted, targeted by the IDF. Uh, including our uh, colleague, uh, son of our colleague, uh, Mahmoud Wa'al uh, al Hamza Wa'al al Is the United States condemn targeting journalists? I am deeply, deeply sorry for the almost unimaginable loss suffered by your colleague, Wa'al al uh, I am... Uh, I'm a parent myself. I can't begin to imagine the horror that he's experienced, not, not once, but now, not twice. This is uh, an unimaginable tragedy, and that's also been the case for, as I said, far too many innocent Palestinian men, women, and children. We just heard 
what Anthony Blinken said. And unfortunately, this is just a audio podcast and not a video. But if you take a look at the video, Blinken looked so perturbed. Just the look on his face, like this is such a terrible, terrible tragedy. It's incomparable. But the things he said, it was, I'm sorry, but firstly, he got soccer punched because what he didn't realize and what Israel released right after this clip, which appeared on the news conference, is that they released a document published by the IDF spokesman that proves that Hamza Dadu, who Secretary Blinken was so distraught over, happened to be an active commander in the military wing of the Islamic Jihad. So he might have a microphone in one hand, but he's got automatic weapons in the other, and he's killed Israelis. And I don't know how Blinken could have been so uh, naive to fall for this, but uh, he did. And uh, this is part of what Israel is up against. They're up against a friend in the United States who doesn't know half of what's going on here. Yeah, I mean, can I just say that slightly tongue in cheek that, you know, that Gazans have a hard time making ends meet. And so the fact is he needs to hold down two jobs. If he's not making enough from Al Jazeera during the day. He definitely needs to moonlight, you know, in terrorist operations later on to just simply to make ends meet. We all know that they live in poverty and that none of the Hamas leadership live in the kind of luxury that was shown on Israeli television yesterday, incredible estates in central Gaza, absolutely unbelievable. Some of the other wealthiest parts of the world, most people there who are not Zaychat are that type of Ashuras, they really simply need to engage in terrorism, obviously, to make ends meet. We should bear that in mind. And I'm sure Blinken was doing so. Has to be said beyond that, what about Israel's defenders? We know the strongest defense in the international arena is basically coming from people like Anthony Blinken. And what's remarkable is the fact that that is the strongest defense when the trial in the war crimes trial brought by South Africa against Israel in The Hague is getting underway now. And we'll be wiser about that next week, talking about that next week's podcast. Blinken rightly says, well, it's just nonsense. Israel is not guilty of war crimes. It's got to do with the Palestinians and Hamas. They're keeping the hostages, etc. He rightly put the ball back in their court. But we see no effort to really change the tone of the international debate on Israel. We see no effort to make allies fall in line. When you have Biden getting up, he was in a church on the Carolinas uh, this week. Some guy, this protesters start yelling at him over war crimes in Gaza. And he said, we're trying to get the Israelis to back off. We're trying to get them to do less casualties. Why, why is that that Israel's defenders are taking that line? Surely the line should be that, that Hamas need to be destroyed. This is the cost of their destruction. And that every regrettable civilian death should be placed at the doorstep of Hamas. Where is that strength? So in other words, what we're seeing, Benjamin, is that Israel's defenders are doing so in this kind of apologetic way, holding on by their fingertips. We need to demand from the Americans far more full-throated defense of Israel, I'm afraid, because if you want to be able to say you stood up for Israel, it includes standing up to the disgraceful rhetoric emanating from the left. Until you do that, you're only doing half the job. So at last night's debate, Nikki Haley used the term moral clarity. The term is uh, becoming a bit of a cliche. However, it really rings true. And you have to decide whose side are you on and why are you on that side? And then you have to stick with it. Now, I understand diplomats sometimes have to say things they really don't want to say because they're diplomats and they're in someone else's country and they're under the gun and they have to not literally under the gun, but they're under the gun diplomatically and professionally. And they have to show that you know, they're also listening to the other side and they're taking their concerns and their needs into account. But at a certain point, you can't play this double game anymore. And uh, this is what's going on. And uh, what I 
would like to see, or what I like seeing, I should say, is there was a protest group here to protest Blinken's visit. It's called the Mothers of Combat Soldiers Foundation. And they put a big sign up with four soldiers. And the slogan was, let our children fight, as you would let your children fight. Yeah, can I just say on that point, I was at Shiva last night. In fact, it was this Shiva for Gabriel Bloom, who we mentioned on the Monday podcast. He was from Beit Shemesh. He was a soldier who was killed then. He was 27-year-old. He was a combat engineer in that dreadful accident. And we didn't know at the time what had happened, but now we know that it was an Israeli tank shell seemed to have triggered a premature explosion as these engineers were rigging up the explosives to destroy Hamas underground complex. And I was struck. There was probably 100 people there packed with soldiers in all stages of soldiers' dress, and some of them were senior, some of junior, and visitors from all over. No one knew, half the people didn't know each other. I certainly, the family, David and Jennifer Bloom, originally American, been here 30 years. I didn't know them. They didn't know me. They said hello, but never got the chance to go beyond that. Now, I was struck, though, from the conversations, sitting there for half an hour conversations with the soldiers, and you can hear different people talking. The morale is very, very high, and the determination of the soldiers and the families, and even of the ones who were sitting shiva and have lost a loved one in a, what is essentially a friendly fire incident, was struck by how high the morale was, the knowledge that their son had not died in vain, the knowledge that this had to go on, and the knowledge that this is very far from over. So beyond what I'm seeing is the kind of disconnect between the hundreds of thousands are still in the army, and the morale there is sky high, despite the threats, despite the fears. They know what has to be done. And that means that I think there's a kind of disconnect between the international discourse as if what's going on in the media as if this is winding down. And one final thought on that, Benjamin, is that you talk about the Americans talking out to both sides of the mouth. I hope that that's what's going on the Israeli leadership side. Because basically hearing signals that, yes, we're going on to the third stage of fighting and it's less intense, etc. I hope that's just for American and international consumption. Because... If really what we're seeing is the fact that the whole thing is essentially winding down, there is going to be a huge revolt from the soldiery who are massive numbers of voters who are going to be saying, we know the job is not finished. You can't pull the wheel over our eyes. We know where this tunnels are. We know what we didn't do. And so I'm very much hoping that really the plan is to help the Americans placate international opinion, but softly, softly to go on fighting and do as necessary. Dalia, you made a point uh, the other day about the reservists and how many hundreds of thousands there are and what a force they are. I did a little bit of uh, mathematical calculation. If they started a reservist party for the next election and you have 350,000 reserve soldiers who join, of course, not all of them would, but let's just say theoretically, and it takes around 45,000 votes to get one seat in the Knesset, they could possibly run and get eight, nine seats in the next Knesset. So uh, all these polls that uh, show Benny Gann easily waltzing to be uh, the next prime minister, I think are very premature because we're going to see a lot of different formations in the next uh, election. You might even have two Likud parties and not one. It's also a bit premature to talk about that, but I wouldn't be surprised to see the Likud split into two. And this, this thing is far from over. It's far from over militarily on the ground and it's far from over politically. No one should assume that the alignments that we see today are going to be the alignments that are going to run in the next election or even be in the next Knesset. But you know, I think that th- that mathematics, in fact, I've never heard even the back of, I've never heard that run the back of the envelope cam calculation is very interesting to bear in mind. Let's go all the way down to the Red Sea, to at least using this platform, whether 
We've talked about the Houthi and the Iranian costs of piracy in the Red Sea because, you know, attacking the Houthis are attacking all international shipping there because of Gaza. Will two dynamics force the West, led by the United States and Britain, to actually crack down on the Houthis? I think because what we're seeing, but you know, another an interesting stat I came across yesterday, shipping costs are soaring because of, in the last couple of months, because of Houthi attacks. And the, and the stats on that is that the cost of sending a container from Shanghai to Rotterdam which is obviously a major con container port in Europe, has gone in the last two months from $1,500 to more than $3,500. So economics and 90% of shipping has dropped off there, uh, is going around the what's it called Southern Africa over there. Right. The economic case for doing something about the Houthis has collided with the Houthi case for doing something about the Houthis. Meaning, because yesterday, this staged the most intense series of attacks on the combined task force, the, the international coalition, naval coalition there against them. Apparently, the, the British and American warships downed 21 drones and missiles. Some of them were drones, some of them ballistic missiles, some of the cruise missiles, some of them were anti-ship. They lobbed the whole lot of them. You know, you can imagine these tribesmen, they're running around with these sophisticated weapons and they had to shoot 21 of them down. And yesterday, the British released pictures of the bridge of a destroyer, HMS Diamond, firing a Sea Viper anti-aircraft missile, which are very, very expensive, it was kind of a couple of million ago. And you can see that they're in battle stations because the sailors are wearing what they call these protective flash gear. Beyond is kind of this white cotton onesie with a balaclava. That's what it looks like. So in other words, it's a naval battle. So Britain and America are engaged in a sea war with a Yemeni power, or essentially Iranian. And their defense sector of the United Kingdom Grant Shapps, I think he's Jewish, by the way. He said yesterday there was movement. He says, enough is enough. He said, this cannot continue. We won't allow it to continue. So watch this space. So that is the furthest anyone across the West has gone in saying that we're actually going to do something about this. The question is, what will appear in that space, Binyamin? Will they go on the attack? Will they bomb a few empty sheds? Or will, as Nikki Haley said yesterday, we have to actually go after their rocket manufacturing sites? Will they store that? That's an open question, Miriam, and I think the people are once again are going to be watching this, Iran, Russia, and China, and they're not stupid. When Western governments try to pull the wool over their citizens' eyes, that wool is certainly not pulled over the eyes of the Iranians, Russians, and Chinese. They can read the map. They're saying, well, the West is weak, and we can do what we want. So one hopes that some determination and action will finally fill this space. Well, when you have the foreign minister of Britain, David Cameron, speaking yesterday or two days ago about how he's watching everything that Israel's doing, and he's taking a look at the type of force we're using in Gaza, and he's in touch with uh, all sorts of sources and people to keep his eye on us. I mean, we really appreciate that, of course, from him. There was a kind of national feeling of, here we go again, when he got the job, because he is the ultimate smooth representative of the blob, the elites who have these kind of center, less centrist or even tending towards left positions. And we had a few years of reprieve in which the blob was whacked aside with the Boris Johnson years and Brexit. And unfortunately, it was just like kind of eye-rolling. This is so what we would have expected from the old years, and unfortunately, it's back again. But anyway, I interrupt. What were you saying? So the point is, when uh, you have the foreign minister, who that's the way he's looking. I mean, I'm glad to hear what you said about the defense minister, and he's starting to talk tougher. But if you want to stop the Houthis, uh, you have to take offensive action, not just uh, shoot down their missiles when they fire. Don't even let them fire to begin with. And the way you do that is by going on the attack and taking the attack to them. Correct. And you know, I think to end the week, we've got the old Masora of this podcast, which is 45 episodes old. So is there are Masoras and traditions to be had at this stage. 
is a bright spot. We want to talk about, and not a bright spot. Yesterday, if you'd been at the console, you would have seen perhaps some pictures and videos going on moving. 50,000 people gathered at the console for, it was Yom Kippur Kotten, and it was obviously Rosh Chodesh's time with Villa. And Yom Rosh Chodesh, we said this morning, is called to Shurat Nafshah Miyad that it's Rosh Chodesh is a time of salvation from enemies. So obviously it's Villa's very, very special time to gain us the salvation that we desperately need. But there are often 50,000 people at the close, so it's not in itself unusual, unheard of. What was different about this was the nature of the crowd. I was not able to go, but I heard from someone who is a very secular Tel Aviv Israeli. He gave me a call about something else, and he said, I'm very secular. My wife is even more secular. So in other words, secular Lemahadrin, Lemahadrin, he would say, and he said, his wife, she's some role in the army to deal with hostages or people who've, who've lost loved ones there. She went along and he said, what her words were, said it was so uplifting to see the Haredim, the secular people, the Ashkenazim and Sephardim all getting together. And there's that sense of unity. A people, Kralli Israel, I think, is split often. We're all kind of fragmented into so many different splinters. But deep down, people don't want to be split. They want the unity and the crisis that Hashem sent has brought people together. And that's one bright spot that Hashem brought, even in a time of difficulty. And there's always a silver lining. And the silver lining is we're hopefully seeing more unity and actors that will remain as we go forward. So, Yamin, I want to wish you and listeners everywhere a good Chodesh and a good Shabbos.